when we talk about portfolios and investments, people are just assume we're talking about that one goal of retirement, but you may have other goals and all those different goals should be in different portfolios because they have, they have different criteria. If you're saving for a down payment in a home and you need that money in five years, that should be in a very different portfolio than something, you know, your retirement portfolio in which you're not going to retire for 40 years. Hi guys, we're your hosts, Jillian and Kaylin, and this is Teach Me How to Adults, a podcast on all the things you never learned growing up, like how to buy a home, manage stress, crush your love life, land your dream job, and how to love yourself more, because we could all be a little kinder to ourselves. We're still figuring out how to get our shit together, so we're calling in the experts and the hustlers for some real talk and legit tips on how to live your best life. Adulting isn't easy, but we got you. Hi friends. We are so excited about today's episode. It's one of our most highly requested topics, and it can seem like a whole other world to a lot of people. So today we are diving into investing with the millennial money expert, Jessica Morehouse. We are also so excited to announce that we are officially part of Rogers Sports and Media's Frequency Podcast Network. Yay! Yay! And this is our first episode with the network, and we're just so pumped for what's to come. Yeah, we are so excited. So thanks for joining the ride. Okay, let's get into it. So in our recent Instagram poll, 80% of you said you find investing to be really intimidating and we hear that, but everything we learned from this episode showed us that you don't need to be the wolf of Wall Street to start investing. We sure as hell are not. No, we are not. And we also want to preface that we are based in Toronto, Canada, and Jessica is also Canadian. So some of the specifics of this episode are going to be tailored to Canadian products and institutions. So when we talk about TFSAs or RSPs, for example, what we mean is your Roth IRA or your 401k in America. But U.S. and Global Friends, her general advice and philosophy around investing is still very applicable to all of you. Yeah, these principles apply to everyone. So here's what else you guys said in our polls about your comfort and your experience levels with investing. So 65% of you have started investing your money already. Yes, we love to see it. And 70% of you have taken advantage of your TFSA and RRSPs. And 30% don't know what the fuck that means. But don't worry, you are about to find out. We got you. 61% of you use a financial advisor and 39% use a robo-advisor and some of you DM'd us to say you do it yourselves. So we are impressed. And then in terms of risk tolerance, 41% said that you're more of an aggressive investor while 59% of you are more conservative. Pretty, pretty well-rounded investing group, I I have to say. 100%. And there's something for everyone if you've already gotten started but still have some shit to learn, stick around. And if you haven't, then... Here we are. Let's talk about why you should start investing ASAP, like yesterday, AKA compound interest. So you know that old saying that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is now? Investing is the exact same. So the key to building wealth is developing good habits, like regularly putting money away every month and investing consistently so you can start to see your money compound year over year. And I know a lot of us might believe, I certainly did before, that investing is only for super rich middle-aged people, but that just is not true. And it is so key to start investing even a little tiny bit while you're young and just starting off so that you can reap the benefits of those early investments later on. And compound interest is essentially growing your principal investment by earning interest on top of the interest that you've already accumulated. And that just means exponential growth. And that means future you is going to be hella happy. Yeah. And one of the best examples that I've seen for compound interest is from financial guru Dave Ramsey, who is just this like hilarious man. You got to check out his podcast. And he tells this awesome story about two brothers, Ben and Arthur. So Ben started investing $2,000 a year at age 19, but stopped at age 26 and never invested another dime. While Arthur, his brother, starts later. So he starts investing at age 27 and invests all the way up until age 65, basically his entire life. If you take those years and those that amount of money over a 12% return, guess who came out ahead at retirement? Which, by the way, 12% is a crazy return, but let's just... For yeah. math reasons... For the purpose of the story. For the purpose <laughs> of the story, it works. So Ben who only invested for under 10 years, ends up with almost $2.3 million, and Arthur ends up with 1.5. 
crazy. Like, it's crazy. And hey, Arthur with 1.5 is still really good. But obviously, the sooner you start, the better. But never too late. Never too late. Totally never too late. So now that we know that today is literally the best day to start investing, we just want to briefly cover some of the basics and the key definitions that you should know going into this episode, since this is Investing 101. It's like your starter crash course. So we cover a lot of this throughout the episode, but if you are a beginner like me, I needed to hear these terms a bunch of times before I really grasped them. So if you're a seasoned investor, you probably already know this shit. If not, Let's get into a speed style round of uh, everything you need to know. The main types of investments that you should know are stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and ETFs. So when you buy a stock, you're buying a partial ownership of a publicly traded company. And these guys can be riskier, but also reap a bigger reward. Whereas a bond is a loan that you make to a company or a government that then pays you a fixed rate of return over time. And a mutual fund is when you pool together money from a bunch of different investors to purchase stocks or bonds, and it creates a more diverse portfolio than what the average investor could really build on their own. Then there's index funds, which are a type of mutual fund that lets you buy investments that mimic the trends of an index. So for example, the S&P 500 is an index that's basically a barometer of the overall stock market's performance of the largest 500 US companies across different sectors. These are usually more passive investments with lower fees than mutual funds. And then an exchange-traded fund, or ETF, is a collection of investments that can be traded on an exchange like a stock. So, sounds complicated, but basically that means it can be bought and sold throughout the trading day, unlike mutual funds, which those are priced at the end of the trading day. So with ETFs, you can buy and sell a basket of assets without having to buy all of those individual components separately. And they also have lower fees than a lot of other types of funds. And then GICs, aka Guaranteed Investment Certificates, are sold by a bank where the investor deposits money in the bank and then earns interest on that money. The catch to this is the money has to be deposited for a fixed length of time and interest rates vary according to how long that commitment is. So when you buy a GIC, you're basically lending the bank money and getting paid interest in return for the favor. You're welcome, bank. (laughs) Thank you, sir. So we've covered the main types of investments, but now here are some terms that you should know for when you start investing. So first up to know, there's capital gains, and that is an increase in the value of an investment, like stocks, assets, real estate, from the original price. So these profits are generally taxable. So if you've made a shit ton of money off of an asset and now you're selling it and you've made a bunch of profit, you pay tax on that difference in price. But there are exceptions. So for example, in Canada, you don't get taxed on capital gains in your primary residence. But if you have like a vacation home or something, you would get taxed on the gains in value of that property. Also, in terms of investing, that's why a TFSA is hella helpful because the money that you put there after tax in your tax-free savings account, you do not pay capital gains on the value that goes up over the next few decades. So that that is a key way to not pay capital gains on your investments. Hundo P. And then a dividend is a payment made to you by a company in which you own shares. So it's essentially a reward to investors when a company earns a profit. And those are amazing. (laughs) We like those. Dollar cost averaging is an investment strategy where you invest set amounts of money at regular intervals instead of all at once. So let's say you had $10,000 to invest in a certain stock. Instead of putting all 10 now, you could do 5,000 now, and then in a few months from now, when the stock price is a little bit lower, put the other five in, and it just averages out the price that you bought the stocks at. So it's just ensuring you're not only buying at all high prices. Right. That's super key. I did not know about that before, and I just put everything I had in at once. So it's, it's good to know that this is an option that will average you out. I mean, if the stock price is low or at a price that you like, like go all in. Why not? It's also super important to know your risk tolerance when you start out. So the risk of an investment is the degree of uncertainty or potential financial loss inherent in an investment decision. So what that means is that there's usually a risk reward trade-off where your potential return is going to increase as your risk increases. So a low risk investment would be something like a GIC or a bond or just holding cash in a high interest savings account. 
Medium risk would be investing in stocks, mutual funds, or ETFs. And then high risk would be some stocks like a hot new tech stock that just came out or cryptocurrency where it's a little bit more volatile and it costs a lot more to buy into it. Right. And then in terms of how you set up your investing, whether you're going with the robo-advisor, financial advisor, or the self-directed route, one of the key things that we have learned to building good financial habits is automation. So everything we've talked about right now, as you move forward, one of the most amazing things you can do for your success is exploring how you can set up your accounts to automatically move a set amount from your income or from your checkings account into your high interest savings or your investment accounts on a regular basis. So you're, you're paying into your savings, you're paying into your investments accounts, and you're guaranteeing that it happens because you've automated it. Set it up and make your life easier. And that is your quick and dirty primer for this episode. And Kaylin, I think you are a bit more seasoned than I am. So tell us how you've been doing it. I mean, I've learned everything I know from Gabe because he's just a way more experienced investor than I am. And our strategy is simple. It's boring. It's low risk. We just save as much <laughs> as possible so that when the market drops, we can put things in when stocks are low. So we max out our TFSAs and RSP each year so we can get those tax advantages that you mentioned earlier. And essentially, our portfolio is basically passively managed ETFs. And then we try to keep some money aside that we call our play or fun money where we do invest in specific companies that we want to buy for fun and, you know, try being a little bit more risky and seeing if we can get a bigger reward. But I will say that when we do pick those stocks, we pick companies that we believe in. We don't just kind of go after like the latest, hottest stock tip that we hear. It's just too risky for us. We're, we're very risk adverse. The key for us too is we like to buy and hold long term. We, we don't want to get emotional about it. Like our investing goal right now is for retirement. We don't know what we want. We don't know if we want to buy a house or where we want to live. And Jessica talks about this in the episode, having like different accounts for different goals. And right yeah, now, yeah. because we just don't know short term what we want, we're just going long term it'd be nice to retire at a reasonable age and not like 95. The dream. The dream, right? So that's how we approach our investing. Yeah, you guys have a pretty good system going. I am uh, I'm a little envious, but I've learned a lot. Yeah, but you're doing your thing. You've got some good stuff going on. Yeah, I've figured a bunch out. My biggest investment has really been in real estate in buying a home um, since I was just paying so much in rent for so long mm -hmm. that being able to put some money into real estate and even seeing the value of my of my condo going up is is really great but I did open a TFSA and put all my savings into it and was super proud and was like wow look at me I'm adulting so hard and then I did nothing I just <laughs> it just sat there <laughs> like I was like sweet done check that box and then I and then I realized in the past year that I should be investing from my TFSA so I am now investing with Wealth Simple and everything that I have in there is currently long-term goals for me. So I have invested pretty aggressively, like pretty high risk because this is stuff again, like as Caitlin mentioned, that I'm not being emotional about. I'm mm -hmm. not checking regularly. If things go up and down, this is money that I don't want to touch ideally for a few decades. So yeah. I'm going all in. I'm being pretty aggressive and, and She's going all best. in folks. <laughs> but definitely explore robo advisors if that is an option for you because the fees are lower and you just get a bit more autonomy and a bit more like hands-on experience and control of what you're doing. But all that to say, we are definitely not the experts. So we called in the pro Jessica Morehouse. Jessica is a millennial money expert, speaker, accredited financial counselor, award-winning blogger, host of the More Money podcast and founder of the Millennial Money Meetup, which is a series of empowering personal finance events. She is the go-to expert for all things personal finance, and she's honestly a money empowerment badass. Her mission is to teach others how to take control of their lives by taking control of their money, and we are here for that. Teach us how to invest our money, Jessica. Thank you so much again for taking the time to chat with us. We are so excited about this and we would love to just know how you became the millennial money expert and how you got into personal finance and investing. Yeah, well, I guess this will go back almost 10 years now. Back in 2011, I got the idea to start my own personal finance blog just because I loved reading others' 
you know, personal finance blog so much. And it really helped me get clarity on, on things that I just didn't know anything about. I mean, I don't, I didn't study finance in school, never learned that in high school. And uh, when I moved out and finished university, I really didn't have much of a foundation to do with, you know, my paycheck. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. So of course I went to the internet and, uh, you know, thought, well, you know, this would be kind of a cool thing to do on the side, just to have a kind of creative outlet. I just kind of fell in love with the world of personal finance. And then eventually in 2015, I started my own podcast now called the more money podcast. And then, you know, added on a YouTube channel a couple of years back and really just kind of started exploring other avenues. Cause I really just wanted to, to have a voice in this space that is, sometimes I think hard to kind of enter and also doesn't necessarily have people that look like me that's in it that's definitely changing but I mean even back in 2011 when I was reading blogs there there were you know several by women but they really had a focus on debt or budgeting and the only people that were talking about investing were you know white men old white men basically so I always kind of felt like investing wasn't something that I was even supposed to be you know part of I didn't feel very welcomed into the club so to speak and so it took me a while to actually start getting over my fear of investing and learning about it and pushing myself. And I realized it's actually not that complicated. And everyone who makes it sound like it is more complicated than it is has some sort of MO. And I really need to kind of spread the word. Well, we are so glad that you did because it's really helped us. And it's just been really a nice change to have someone that we can relate to teaching us about finance because it's... You know, often it just seems like it can be a a condescending experience or we can be made to feel Mm -hmm. like dumb for not knowing things and everything that you put out there is relatable and accessible and it's it's been a huge help to a lot of people. So thank you for what you do. Well, thanks. I think part of the reason I can be relatable is because I myself experienced all the things that so many other women have experienced. I mean, uh, maybe it was uh, not too long ago, but it was maybe five years ago maybe it was six years ago, I I still remember vividly being in, you know, a bank in the office with our financial advisor and we were in mutual funds and we really didn't know how, you know, what was going on with our investments. We just kind of thought they knew what was going on. So we'll just trust them or trying to do what our parents did like everybody does. And I remember vividly being with my husband who God bless him, doesn't care about personal finance or investing. He's more interested in it now, but back then he didn't like, I knew more about it. You know, that's, I I had that kind of education about that. And the advisor who was, you know, this kind of baby boomer uh, guy would literally just talk to my husband and almost like I was invisible. And I'm like, hi. And I literally said to him, you see all of those certificates on your wall. I'm going to get those. I'm going to get those. And I have most of them now. And so it's one of those things where... I definitely use a lot of that as motivation. It's like, oh, you don't think that I'm part of this conversation or I'm even worthy of being part of this conversation? Well, I'm going to show you. So Mm -hmm. when should people start investing? Like, is there a financial Mm -hmm. wellness check that you should do before you dive right in? Should you be focusing on paying off any debts and mortgages before you start? Mm -hmm. How do you know you're ready? Yeah. So, you know, in general, you should start investing as soon as possible. But, you know, for instance, you know, I have an investing course and uh, I always ask, you know, I have a call with, you know, potential students. I always ask, like, where are you at? (laughs) Because you may not be ready to invest if you have a lot of high interest consumer debt, like credit cards, lines of credit, things that are, I'd say, above five or six percent then you should focus on debt repayment. If you do not have an emergency fund, that's three to six months of your living expenses, if not more, depending on your situation. If you're self-employed, have nine to 12 months, then you shouldn't be thinking about investing. You really need to focus on getting that emergency fund, paying off your high interest debt. And then if you have other debts like student loans, car loan, uh, mortgage, things that are relatively low interest, you can continue to aggressively pay that off while investing at the same time. So that's usually kind of my benchmark for are you ready? If you check some of those boxes, then you may be ready. Okay. That's really helpful because I know like I, I carry a mortgage and so some people will say, well, you should be paying that off before you start investing. That is just straight. But then I'm like, okay, but then I'm like, well, I'm learning about compound interest. And if I, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of benefit that could come from me starting right now and I'm not going to pay off my entire mortgage anytime soon. So then I'm going to miss out on all of that investing opportunity. Yeah. And we're in a low interest rate. Like it doesn't make mathematical sense to pay off your very low interest mortgage. And, you know, we're looking at one, 2% right now in Canada. Mm -hmm and not invest your money and potentially earn way higher. So I know, you know, just looking back at 2020, it was a weird year, but if you invested in say, 
an ETF that uh, focused on the S&P 500, which is like, you know, basically representative of the entire uh, American stock market, you could have made 16%, possibly more. So, you know, what makes sense? Would you like to make 16% or pay off one to 2%? Like you've got to actually not listen to some of that advice. And I see this advice all the time. It depends on the source that you're getting it from. Some people are just very anti-debt and I get it, some debt is bad, but I think there's too much of a focus on saving, scrimping, being frugal and paying down debt and not enough on wealth creation. And I think especially for women, this is very important for us to hear because we're very, I think again, we really are, we're we're actually pretty good at paying down debt and saving and and living within our means. Mm -hmm. But we again need to do better in terms of activating that wealth generation uh, part of our lives. Because again, we weren't part of the kind of conversation for so long. So we need to maybe, you know, take that advice with a grain of salt and then do our own mathematical calculations. Or there's even tons of calculators out there that will actually you can plop in your different uh, interest rates for your debts and you know how much you currently owe and then also you know uh, some kind of ideas for how you would invest and it'll tell you specifically should you pay down debt or should you invest like there's so many ways that you can kind of figure it out yeah just google (laughs) there's so many free ones online you can check out but yeah in general if uh if it's low interest debt and you could potentially earn more investing in say index funds it makes more sense logically and mathematically to invest. I think another thing that people don't realize when it comes to mortgages and should I pay this off aggressively is, okay, so you could do that. You could focus the next 10 years and pay it off and have, you know, you'd be debt-free, completely mortgage-free and zero in your retirement account. So that's not really going to help you when it comes down to retirement. And also when you're paying down debt and, and paying off your mortgage, you're basically just paying into one security, one asset. Right. So wouldn't you rather kind of be diversified and that's a really important part of investing to diversify investing in lots of different companies industries sectors countries all these things you can't just focus on the one thing and honestly i've interviewed so many people who've been able to reach financial independence and retire early the across the board regret that most of them have is i wish i didn't focus so much on paying off my mortgage quick i wish i actually took that extra money and invested it because i'd actually be way further ahead now wow that's so good to know (laughs) So helpful. So let's start with the basics for anyone who's sort of just getting into investing. So what are the different types of investments that people can buy? You you mentioned a few index funds, ETFs, mutual funds, stocks, bonds. Give us the scoop. Yeah, so there's lots of different products, um, but for kind of the kind of traditional ones, so there's like alternative investments, which I'm not really going to get into because they are kind of for a certain type of investor, someone who has maybe uh, more of a tolerance for risk, such as cryptocurrency and things like that. But kind of the typical ones that you will as an investor encounter uh, is, you know, individual stocks and bonds or GICs. Um, but really the ones that we're really probably going to invest in are funds. So we've got actively managed mutual funds, index mutual funds, and ETFs exchange traded funds and even within those uh, especially like exchange traded funds there's lots of different types so but those at a high level are kind of the typical ones you will invest in. Um, I think a lot of us are probably the most familiar with actively managed mutual funds. They're typically just called mutual funds. If you're at the bank, they're going to talk just about mutual funds, even though there's two types. There's actively managed and index. The reason is because they're very high fees. Those advisors make a ton of money off those. They don't make as much money on index mutual funds. Um, Even though they are still both mutual funds, they work in a bit of a different way. And then there's ETFs, which I'm a big fan of. I think they're a really great investment product because again, there's a variety. There's active ETFs, there's index ETFs, but they are so much lower in fees than mutual funds, but effectively give you the same diversification and same benefits of a mutual fund. And the reason why mutual funds were so popular, and they're still like a decent product, it's better to invest in that than nothing, is because you can start investing with very little money. Typically, your initial investment is like $500 and then you can put $50 a month into this fund. So it's very low cost at the beginning, which is makes it more accessible for people. But also you are able to then kind of pool your money with a bunch of other investors. And again, get exposure to different stock markets, different sectors, industries, countries. So you're, you know, spreading your money around, uh, which is a really good thing. But ETFs now exist and they have since the 90s. Those are kind of uh, getting a lot more popularity because they have a lot of the same benefits for for lower cost. And so uh, those are definitely a product to look into as well. And what are some of the best kinds of investing accounts to open? Like there's RSPs, TFSAs. What should people Mm -hmm. know about those? 
Yeah, it's a good question. And I get often, I mean, all the time, I get questions or, or, or I, I'm having a conversation with someone. I'm like, okay, are you, you're currently investing. What are you investing in? And they're like, RSPs. And you're like, okay, well, let's back up a bit. So TFSAs, RRSPs, those are registered accounts. So they're not investments. They're containers where you can put investments in or cash if you want. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing uh, I'd say kind of missed opportunity I see with so many people is they're using their TFSAs, tax-free savings account, as just a regular savings account with cash. They're actually a great vehicle for investing. Um, there's so many great benefits. Basically, we all get this you know, certain amount, this dollar limit we get every single year. It compounds too. So if you haven't ever contributed to a TFSA, check out your My CRA account and you'll be able to see what's your contribution room. It might have grown quite significantly. And then you can in put your investments into that account. And what's great is, so you don't get a tax deduction like an RRSP, you are putting after tax dollars in it, but your uh, investments can grow tax free. So let's say you invested a thousand dollars and it, you know, you invested in some stocks or something like that. It doubled to two thousand dollars. If you want to pull out just the growth, so that thousand dollars of growth, you don't get taxed when you make that withdrawal. And then also you get that room that so you made that withdrawal, you get that room back the next year. Oh, nice. So, so many great benefits. With an RSP, it really was created to incentivize people to save for retirement. That's why there's a lot of uh, things that you shouldn't do, such as make a withdrawal from your RSP before you retire, unless you're going to use one of the programs like the First Time Home Buyers Plan. So that's one kind of uh, program you can use where it's actually okay to make a withdrawal, though you do have to pay that money back. That I think a lot of people forget about. You don't just get to make a withdrawal and there's no consequences. But it really is meant for you to invest your money and not touch it until you retire. And the benefit really is uh, you get a tax deduction. So this is great if you you know make a really good living um, and you're in a high tax bracket and trying to lower your tax bill. If you contribute to your RSPs, that will lower your tax bill. So lots of great benefits. For in general though, when I get asked which one should I use, um, it really kind of comes down to yeah, what tax bracket are you in? If you're in a lower tax bracket, you're just at the beginning of your career, not making a ton of money, don't owe a ton of money in taxes, really utilize that TFSA. Once you're at a point where you're like, oh, I'm, you know, maybe in one of the higher tax brackets, then you should focus on your RRSPs. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. Cause I just kind of made the mistake of putting savings into a TFSA and feeling really good about it, like a year and a half or two years ago, and then never investing with it. Like I just used it as mm -hmm. a savings account, but yeah. No. Well, it's, it's all right. Like you didn't make a mistake. Exactly. Like you learned, you're like, Oh, okay. I can do something different with that. That's kind of cool. Um, the thing that I think most people don't realize is, um, you can move your accounts to other places. Like you're not stuck wherever you created that account. You can do what's called a plan to plan transfer. You can transfer your TFSA to a robo advisor and then start investing that cash. You can, you know, transfer that TFSA and that cash to a discount brokerage and start, you know, investing in whatever you want there. And again, you're not making withdrawal, you're just transferring it over. So you're never stuck. And same with RSPs, you can make a transfer, um, you know, either in kind or in cash to another institution and start doing something differently with your money. Okay. And can you withdraw from a TFSA kind of at any period versus RSP you would be leaving that long term? Yeah. So the reason, the, the big reason you don't want to withdraw from an RRSP is you get taxed. So there's a withholding tax. So you, the consequence there, but also you make a withdrawal, you never get that room back. So uh, that sucks because, okay. you know, you're working really hard, uh, you know, to, to grow your wealth in your RRSP. If you make withdrawal, you lose that room forever. TFSA, you don't, you get it back the following year. So I don't remember what your original question was, but again, going back to the TFSA is so much more flexible in terms of growing your wealth um, long-term or short-term and making those withdrawals whenever you want throughout the year. The only thing you really do need to make sure you don't do is uh, go over your contribution limit. I think a lot of people forget let's say you make a withdrawal, then you make a contribution, withdrawal, contribution. You do that over and over again, like using it like a typical savings account. Every time you make a contribution, even if it's like the same technically money, you withdrew $1,000, then you're like, oh wait, that was a mistake. I want to put it back in. That's considered a brand new contribution. And again, we all have certain contribution amounts that we've accumulated. And so it's very easy to accidentally contribute too much. And with that, there is a penalty. Good to know. Yeah, good to know. So it's really important. I think most people probably wouldn't do this, but I think it's actually a really great idea is to first take a look in your CRA account and see in the past, 
how many you know what are the contributions withdrawals i've made so it has all that information in there from past years but then also to keep track of it throughout the year create a little spreadsheet and whenever you make a withdrawal or contribution track it so you never accidentally over contribute so what do you recommend for people who don't have a ton of money to play with necessarily but really want to start just dipping their toe in the market Mm-hmm. I'd say with that, if you don't have a ton of money, and again, going back to the tax bracket, if you don't really need that tax deduction, focus on investing uh, through a TFSA. Um, and again, I, I haven't really touched on this, but of course there's the TFSA, there's the RRSP, there's also taxable or unregistered account. So basically I'd say always use your registered accounts because there's always some tax efficiency there. You run out of room, then you're all, you know, the other option is using an unregistered account, which does have some fun tax things to, to figure out. But uh, usually most people don't even encounter that apart until a little bit later in life. Um, but if you're, yeah, just at the start, you know, investing, there's a couple different great things you could do let's say you're like i have a thousand dollars to start with and then maybe i can contribute an additional i don't know two hundred dollars per month i'm really starting just right at the bottom i would say using a robo advisor is probably your best bet because you usually the initial contribution required for i'm pretty sure every single robo advisor in canada is a thousand dollars but then there's no minimum or maximum you have to contribute on a regular basis and then you can link it to your you know checking account or savings account and automatically um your contributions will be you know put into that robo advisor reinvested for you you can kind of just set it and forget it there's not a ton you need to do and that's a great way to get that kind of habit of investing regularly it's it's great too because like you don't have to check your account that much once it's set up it runs in the background and then after six months or a year you're like oh wow i don't even remember saving all that money or i can't believe how much it's grown over time so that's a really great starting point if you have maybe a little bit more money let's say you're starting with five or ten thousand dollars and maybe you also really want to save money and fees and just have more flexibility then you may want to go the self-directed route which is really opening up a discount brokerage account like quest rate is a popular one there's lots of different ones out there and then you can build your own etf portfolio or you can invest in stocks you can kind of do whatever the heck you want which is good and bad a lot of responsibility so you need to know what you're doing so definitely take some time to do your research but i know a lot of people are like no i don't want anyone can controlling my investments. I really want to do it. So that might be something to explore. Which was the type of investment? Was it EFTs that you can start at 500? Uh, or mutual funds, um, you can typically start about $500. So that's something you'd set up with the bank or an investment firm. Um, and for robo-advisors, because I don't think I really touched on this. So what they, what they are um, is they're like an online platform. They're completely online and they have these pre-built portfolios of index ETFs. And for them, you know, your initial contribution is about $1,000 and what you're paying in terms of fee, again, is so much lower than what the bank would charge you for mutual funds. You're charged 0.5% uh, uh, for a management fee and then the overall MER of the ETF portfolio, usually that could be like 0.15%. Got it. And while we're on that topic, how can people keep their costs down low when they're investing? So you touched on MER, so management mm -hmm. expense ratios. I know some people fall down the rabbit hole of like an expensive advisor at a bank or, you know, different different people that you get involved mm -hmm. who you're you're buying them a, a Lambo if you've got enough money over yeah, the years. You're, yeah, you're paying for their retirement is what you're doing with that money. Um, yeah, the, the best way to uh, save as much money as possible on fees is to go the self-directed route through a discount brokerage. So again, like I mentioned, you can build your own ETF portfolio. Um, there's also these products called asset allocation ETFs, which is really great where it's basically an ETF of ETFs. So, so it's, it's kind of a pre-built portfolio of ETFs. It rebalances itself, so you don't have to worry about doing that. The only thing that you have to do as kind of the money manager is to contribute new money. And whenever you receive, you know, dividends or, or, or anything like that or interest, then you have to, you know, you get paid in cash, then you have to, you know, do whatever you want with that cash. You can buy stocks if you want, or you can try to reinvest it back into that uh, asset allocation ETF. So there's a couple of different things you can do, but yeah, going self directed. I mean, so many people have been doing that for years and they're like, I'll never do anything differently. Again, it really does come down to your personal comfort level. Like, are you okay being your own portfolio manager? Not everyone's like, no, 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 that's not for me. I want to maybe have, you know, I don't want to be so hands-on. And that's again, when maybe a robo-advisor is a better fit for you. Talk to us about risk tolerance. So 
how do people's short-term and long-term financial goals factor into the risk that they should take? So if you mm-hmm. have this money that you're looking to invest for retirement versus you might want to buy a house in the next five years so you don't want to tie everything up. So how do you, how do you approach that risk factor? Yes, there's a couple of things that you mentioned. So there's there's personal risk tolerance, but then there's also your time horizon for your goal. So that's the length you have to be invested before you have to, you know, pull out that money to pay for, you know, down payment on a home or to retire. So first, I always say it's important to really know what your personal risk tolerance is first before also figuring out what should my asset allocation of my portfolio be based on my time horizon. And so there's a number of great and free, um, you know, calculators or investor questionnaires you can take to be like, okay, you answer a bunch of, you know, questions and then it'll kind of suggest, okay, you have a very low tolerance for risk or you have a high tolerance for risk. And another thing I always tell people is, usually your tolerance for risk will be low at the get-go because you have a lot of fear and, and you're just like, ah, oh, there's a lot of unknowns. And so over time, as you educate yourself and become just more experienced investor, you may actually see your risk tolerance increase. Like for me, I was actually very conservative at the beginning because I was just terrified and I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I continue to educate myself and, and, and learn all these things, I'm at probably the highest risk tolerance. Um, and a lot of it also has to do with your personal experience just being in the market so you know remember last march there was a big market crash and it was very interesting to see everyone's reactions a lot of people freaked out and thought this was this is the end of times and they pulled out all their money and they or just or they just uh, converted you know whatever they're investing in into cash or something very secure like bonds and those people if they didn't you know, at some point get back into the stock market, they probably lost a ton of money. The best thing you can do when there's a market crash is absolutely nothing. Just stay invested in whatever your portfolio is, ride out that wave. Because as you'll see, look at the chart, we're higher now, like if we're looking at the American stock market, the Canadian stock market, it's higher now than it was at the beginning of 2020. So, I mean, my portfolio did great (laughs) because I didn't do anything differently than what I'd already kind of organized beforehand. Yeah, you weren't Um, operating like emotionally with like just reacting to everything. 100%, a lot of people react and make decisions off their emotions, which is totally natural to want to do, but you have to check yourself, be like, but I know logically that's actually not a good idea to do as an investor, especially a long-term investor. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of fight that feeling of like, oh no, everything's going down, which is also why I have so many conversations with people that are like, I really want to get into stocks. And I'm like, I don't think you understand what you're getting yourself into. It is an emotional roller coaster, especially (laughs) too. Like I, you know, have part of my portfolio in individual stocks. I invest in a lot of tech companies that I uh, like and I think are, you know, going to continue to grow long term. They go up and down every single day and it's very emotional. So I lose thousands of dollars one day, gain thousands of dollars the next day. The best thing you can do is really just not check your account for a while (laughs) and uh, just kind of let it do its thing. But a lot of people just don't have the stomach for it. And so that's really what risk tolerance means is what kind of stomach do you have for the ups and downs of the market? Mm -hmm. If you really can't handle losing like 30% of the value of your portfolio, because there's another market crash or uh, what have you, an event that happens, then maybe being in something that's like 90% stocks, 10% bonds, isn't a good idea for you. So you've got to do something that you know is right for you, but then you of course can change it at any point. You're never stuck in anything. You can alter. So for me last March, I actually was in a portfolio that was 80, 20 stocks and bonds. And I actually increased it to 90, 10 because I realized, oh, I actually have a bigger, you know, stomach for this. So let's, let's increase my, uh, uh, exposure to stocks. And I'm glad I did because I did pretty well. That's so that awesome. was risk tolerance. I know your other question was investment uh, time horizons. So time frames, that's another yeah. really important thing to think about when you're thinking about, you know, what should my asset mix of my portfolio be depending on the investment goal. And that's really important to also talk about is I think when we talk about portfolios and investments, people are just assume we're talking about that one goal of retirement, but you may have other goals mm-hmm. and all those different goals should be in different portfolios because they have, they have different criteria. If you're saving for a down payment in a home and you need that money in five years, 
that should be in a very different portfolio than something, you know, your retirement portfolio in which you're not going to retire for 40 years, right? You can take on way more risk in your retirement account. You shouldn't take as much risk unless you're okay, you know, again, with the consequences of taking on risk for something that's such a short-term goal. So for something that's a short-term goal, let's say one to two or even three years, that should be in something very conservative. So that should be like savings account, GICs, or a balanced portfolio of say, 60% uh, bonds, 40% stocks, something that's, you know, okay, we're not gonna lose all our money if there's another market crash. Something a little bit longer, like five to seven years, you can take on maybe a little bit more risk that could still be like 60% stocks, 40% bonds, or 70% stocks, 30% bonds. Again, there's totally, there's so many um, great resources and calculators. Like for instance, I mentioned those risk tolerance calculators. They also usually um, kind of give you a suggestion for what a good asset mix for all the, you know, answers that you provided as well. And also if you're using a robo advisor, it kind of forces you to go through their questionnaire to answer, you know, you have to answer what your investment goal is, your time horizon, your risk tolerance. And that's how it will uh, suggest a particular portfolio for you on that criteria as well. Awesome. You've already kind of covered this, but in, in thinking about building a diversified portfolio that manages risk, but also accomplishes goals, what do you think a healthy balance of stocks and bonds would be if we're speaking right now to mostly kind of people in their 20s who are who are getting mm -hmm. started with this for so the yeah first time. it really it really does come down to because i've gotten that question like is there a s certain asset mix for my age or my you know demographic it's like no actually because yeah. <laughs> I, I think some people think that and in general i guess if you're generally speaking yes if you're younger you can take on more risk so yeah, in general, your portfolio should have uh, a bigger exposure to stocks than bonds. If you're older, you're approaching retirement, should have a bigger exposure to fixed income than equities. But it really does come down to organizing that information, getting actually specific in what is your goal for that portfolio. That'll actually, I think, answer your question a little bit uh, more. Possibly a blanket statement, but in your experience with investing, what is the average return each year that someone could see in the stock market? And I think maybe that's if we're thinking more general like s p 500 sort of like a safer investment mm -hmm. yeah so that's a it's a big bigger question that maybe <laughs> you expect it to be so and i get that question often it's like i want to like i get this all the time i want to invest in the s p 500 i'm like let's back up a bit so the s p 500 is a index it's not an investment product it's basically an index that's representative of the top 500 companies in the US. And so there's a lot of different investment products that seek to either match it or replicate it or try to beat it. For instance, I'm a big uh, supporter of and, and you know, investor of index ETFs. Those products are trying to replicate the makeup of a particular index. So it could be the S&P 500 or it could be the Canadian stock market, which is, you know, the biggest benchmark that's representative of that is the S&P TSX composite index. So when it comes to figuring out, okay, you know, people throw around all the time, oh, the stock market is doing really well. It's like, what do you mean specifically? Like what index are we talking about? You know, are you talking about a specific industry, the American or Canadian stock market in general? Are you talking about the global stock market? Like what are we actually talking about? Most people have no idea what they're talking about. They're just saying a headline. So it's really important to get specific on what index, what product, all that kind of stuff. And then also with that, I think a lot of people will maybe look at you know, an index and be like, huh, I'm invested in ETF. And it said in 2020, it's overall return was 16%. I didn't make 16%. What the hell? Well, there's a few things we need to unpack there. It's like, how are you investing? What are the fees? Those fees take away from your overall return. The higher the fees, your return is lower. Um, so that's why, again, fees are so important to really uh, think about. And then also, what is the investment product that you're actually investing in? And it's important to take a look and see what is the benchmark that it's trying to replicate or beat. It might be actually a very different benchmark. So you may actually not be investing in what you think you are. So long story short, important to really understand benchmarks, indexes, and what specifically you're investing in. And then you can kind of do a comparison. Is there, just because we're we're pushy, is there like yeah. an, an amount, like an average amount, just more so out of curiosity, for lower mm -hmm. risk versus higher risk returns that people can kind of like ballpark expect? 
or is it just like no that's way. that's also difficult to say because yeah there's definitely some charts out there and those charts are based off historical returns which have kind of no bearing really on future returns uh people will always caveat they're like here's you know what we might make but again i can't promise that yeah because yeah. <laughs> no one can guarantee future returns we have no idea what's going to happen i don't think anyone expected the u.s stock market to have such a good year last year because we were all expecting everything to kind of go you know really crappy yeah you can definitely find some average just based off some historical data to get some kind of personal benchmarks for you for like what do I want to earn or what do I need to kind of earn in my particular portfolio and is this actually realistic but again it's it's really difficult to kind of just have a blanket statement the important thing to remember is the more you know conservative your portfolio is the lower your returns are because you're taking less risk so you have a higher potential of higher returns if you take on more risk and that again means a higher exposure to stocks and bonds got it so should newbies who are starting out consider doing dollar cost averaging when they're starting to invest or is it better for them to just go all in with their five or six thousand dollars whatever they have what would you recommend yeah i mean uh, there's definitely some studies that show uh, one may not be technically better than the other um because again maybe you know you invest at five thousand dollars and then the stock market continues to climb and you make a really good return but in general because again I don't believe in market timing. It's very difficult to predict the future. Um, I think a great strategy is just dollar cost averaging. So for example, you know, if you have $5,000, it might be a better idea to start with $1,000 and then contribute 250 bucks a week or $500 bi-weekly or $1,000 a month until you've invested the full 5,000. Just because you'll be hitting the stock market or the bond market, depending how you're investing at different points. And so overall, it might just be a better idea. And then it's, it takes some of the guesswork out. You're like, I don't know what's going to happen. So this is probably a good idea. I, I feel like everything that I've kind of learned and researched up till now has informed me that as a as a very beginner investor, it's best not to be picking your own companies to invest in and it's best to just kind of keep things automated. Mm -hmm. But if you do get to a point where you do want to invest in a particular company or you are looking to maybe like invest sustainably in something mm -hmm. that you really believe in, what are the top three things that people should look for when they're deciding to invest in a company? Mm -hmm. Well, the good thing too, because you touched on like, you know, sustainable investing is you don't have to just pick individual companies anymore. There are a ton of uh, ETFs, a ton of ETF portfolios, like a lot of the robo advisors now offer portfolios that are, you know, uh, have ESG criteria. And so it's easier than ever to kind of invest in a different way that is more in line with your personal value. So that's really great. But if you do want to, if you're a beginner and you do want to invest in individual stocks, yeah, typically I wouldn't recommend it because again, it's very, it's a very emotional thing to do. Um, so again, you know, the best advice is, you know, don't ever invest more money that you're willing to lose. I mean, I think a few years back, remember there was like, the whole cannabis industry was going a bit crazy. People were like, I'm making tons of money. And then what happened? They lost a ton of money. And it's important to remember that people will always talk about their wins. They'll never talk about their losses because it's embarrassing to talk about losing tens of thousands of dollars or thousands of dollars. I mean, remember the, it was just a few weeks ago, the whole GameStop uh, situation happened. People were like, oh my God, I'm a genius. I'm making tons <laughs> of money. They weren't a genius. There was so many things going on behind. And, and, and so many people like, unfortunately, I, there's like this one story I read of this uh, young guy who had actually been able to save, you know, quite a, a substantial amount of money. I don't know, like 20,000 or 50,000 or something like that. And he put it all into like GameStop and some other meme stocks and he lost it all because he wasn't really informed about what he was doing. He was gambling. That's not investing. That's gambling, right? So you, no matter how you invest, you really need to do it strategically and do your research. So research these companies, understand what it means to uh, invest in that company and when to potentially get out. I'm For me, when it comes to stocks, I'm a buy and holder. I'm not going to get rid of any of my stocks for a very long time. I mean, it's really recommended, uh, you know, just if you're, again, a long-term investor, hold a stock for good three to five years at the least. There's some really great resources that kind of make it very simple to do your research and uh, you know pick some stocks that you think uh, are good. But I think that the important thing is to not pick a stock just because of peer pressure or FOMO. <laughs> That's why I think so many people bought Tesla and they think they're geniuses because they've done well. We have no idea what's gonna happen with this company or the stock hopefully it continues to go up. But I think that is luck. That's not being a smart investor. You really need to be informed and know what you're investing in before 
you actually put your dollars in there. And so one great way to start that is to actually open up like a, a practice or a test account. Lots of discount brokerages have them. So you're not using your personal money, but you can pretend like you're investing in stocks and see if you have the stomach for it. You may realize this isn't for me. I'm going to do something differently. But in general, too, for a beginner, I would say it's really important to have set up that core portfolio, whether it's mutual funds or ETFs, have that core portfolio that's fully diversified. And then if you want to play around, play around with some play money, just understand what you're getting yourself into. That's very wise. That is good advice. <laughs> we all needed to hear that. And our last question that we love to ask all of our guests is what is one thing that you wish you had learned in school that you didn't? Oh, gosh. I mean, pretty much everything that I'm trying to teach others when it comes to personal finance. I mean, it is kind of disappointing that it's not part of the curriculum. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of teachers lately and yeah, they're like, it's not part of the curriculum and they just don't think it's important. Um, I think if sex ed is important, then balancing your budget and, and managing your money, which has such a huge impact on the rest of our lives, should also be part of the curriculum um, because it's all about personal safety and security in your future. So, I mean, if there's one thing I wish they, you know, can go back and wish they taught me, it was like, yeah, how to budget, how to do, uh, just, you know, open up a, a checking account and a bank account. Like I had to learn that in my, you know, mid twenties, um, how to properly use credit, what to be aware of when it comes to taking on debt. I think a lot of people in college and university don't realize the impact of taking on student loans. Well, thank you for helping us all learn today. It's been so so helpful and i feel like very empowered right now which is oh good exciting. yeah <laughs> all you have to do is you know take some time to to read some books maybe do some courses on it um it, it's like any skill if you want to learn bread you're gonna have to get some books on bread and take maybe a course on bread baking and then trial and error and then you know figure out how to make bread it's just the sa same thing but investing i think for whatever reason probably just you know culturally and historically it's always seemed like you know kind of an exclusive club only certain people are good at investing it's not true it's it's a skill that anyone can learn i feel like before there was this barrier of you have to be like wealthy to do it and like you have to mm -hmm. be a grown-ass wealthy person and now mm -hmm. i feel like we're really learning that starting small and early has such benefit and that it's even just like mm -hmm. a habit and a muscle learning how to do it even if it's with, with such small amounts will set you up for life and so I certainly in my early 20s was just like oh psh, finance I'm no good with that stuff and would just mm -hmm. pretend it wasn't happening around me and be ignorant and now I I don't want that life for me so yeah I think yeah we need to get rid of that idea that I'm, I'm bad with money or yeah. I'm not good with that it's yeah. like mm -hmm. it is literally just a skill it's not a talent it is a skill there's a learnable skill anyone can do it I love that so much I just wrote that down it's a skill not a talent Yay! right <laughs> That is why it's so true. So tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah. So uh, you can find me at my website, jessicamorehouse.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram at Jessica I Morehouse and Twitter, uh, J-E-S-S-I underscore Morehouse. Um, and because we talked a lot about investing and there's still a lot to know. And uh, I think a lot of uh, questions may be unanswered in, in terms of like the practical side. How do I actually implement some of this stuff? That's why I uh, built a course called Wealth Building Blueprint. It's specific for Canadians. So it's called Wealth Building Blueprint for Canadians. But you can find that on my website as well. Amazing. We will link all of that Amazing. so everyone can find it in our show notes uh, and definitely check out Jessica. We hope this episode helps you feel way more confident and capable of managing your money and starting your investing journey. If you're still feeling worried about the risk of investing, we'll leave you with a quote from business mogul Melody Hobson. The biggest risk of all is not taking one. That's what she said. So there you have it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard today, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe and leave a comment or a rating. And we'd love it if you would share this with your friends by screenshotting the episode and sharing it on social by tagging at Teach Me How to Adult Podcast and DM us with any topics or guests you'd like to hear on the show. See you next time. Bye. Bye.